<laughs> I know because because I feel like localism is so uh, as an ideology, it's so insidious because it's so many agreeable notions that are uh, hard to di- hard to disagree with without sounding like a crazy person. Yeah, no, exactly, or like somehow you know, not compassionate, or uh, you know, you don't care about your neighbors. Like, yeah, you care about the community. Like, well, what's funny is like Alex and I run a. a small business small local business oh no way. okay yeah i mean we just run like a small like marketing uh you know web design company uh, okay. i was i was basically a freelancer until i met alex and i was like you know quit your quit your good paying job and like let's be our own bosses and um it, it's been a bumpy ride but then we started to grow and we actually had employees at one point which was wow horrible (laughs) i mean and this ties back to a lot of stuff that you write about um Mm -hmm. in that it's impossible it's impossible to be like a local or i'm sorry a uh an ethical small business person it's it's impossible we 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 almost went totally broke bankrupt by doing so um like trying to be ethical and like pay above the norm and follow the restricted the letter that kind of thing yep yeah yeah no i tied i tied um the base salary to what the local rents were Hmm. um but you know none of our competitors were doing that they were all farming in like you know um low paid or unpaid interns college kids Um, things like that i mean and then most of it too is just the connections like that you have there's there's so much of that within especially within professional services like what we do but what's funny is when we first started becoming more of a small business and not just like uh, freelancers is our whole spin on our business was being like a locavore business like you know shop local (laughs) wow okay so you pushed that like you tried to implement it yeah we were so we were like bought into that kind of like localist kind of thing but we Mm. i mean over the years, we've we've seen how much that's fallen apart as uh, an ideology. The yeah, the black the black pill was being surrounded in a business community that is constantly trumpeting local and shop local and all this other stuff. And then we were constantly being passed over for like cheaper firms that were outside of the area or in other countries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like that was, I think that was like a real crack in the, uh, the egg was when just getting that like experience firsthand of, you know, because now you can see like Amazon, American express, like all these like mega corporations are, draping themselves and shop local support local you know fox talks about etsy a lot um these are all like ostensibly uh-huh. you know these giant platforms supporting local local creators local supporting makers, yeah. and uh it's all an aesthetic you know yeah, yeah. Well, i think i saw it on the wall of starbucks the funny thing too about etsy is that ties back to our area too because one of the co-founders of etsy lives here now and started a sort of a non-profit incubator called the good work institute <laughs> and he's totally tied in with um so a big theme of our work is you know uh warren, uh warren buffett's son peter buffett who is um a student of localism and you know they're heavily invested in the schumacher institute and he's like the poster child for the localist experiment yeah 
you, you guys could write the sequel. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is why we were like so excited to talk to you. Yeah, in our town, like we have, so the guy that funds the Schumacher Institute also funds a local currency, uh, a farming project, a bunch of urban farming initiatives, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, a radio station that proselytizes like 24 seven propaganda about all this stuff. Uh, a number of like identitarian social justice initiatives, um you name it like you know mutual aid like they're they're controlling like the local mutual aid project uh so it is like a full-on localism project and um you know one of the globally known like thought leaders on degrowth moved here to work for this foundation um and he's like kind of monitoring everything and you know next they're getting into like local production of um you know grains and processing grains and they're spending more money here in a small community than any other like foundation is in any other community in the United States. Um, so it's like a, a full bore localism experiment that we're in year four now. And, um, you know, what, what's been great about your book is like, I think I looked into it a couple of years ago. And um, one thing that I wasn't anticipating was that, you know, we, we were full bore into this local localism experiment the Guardian wrote this article about our town saying that we're the city that's preparing for the end of capitalism. And then COVID hit a few months later. And as soon as COVID hit, our town had the highest increase in real estate prices of any place in the entire country. So the oh. like all these localist initiatives, just as your book predicted, um, they didn't prepare. They talk all the time about resiliency and community bonds, communitarian ideals, but there was no like there's no defense built against capital coming in so mm. all the people that built this stuff a lot of them got priced out of the very town that they were like doing all this localist stuff in and right. now it's a look it's a, it's still a localist paradise but you have to be able to afford it you have to be able to like buy a house here uh yeah. which is what people from new york city did because they wanted to get uh, out of the hell world of new york city so they moved yeah. you know 90 miles up up uh, state here well, that was my question. Like, why your town in particular was the uh, seat of all these initiatives? But it sounds like there was some money there for a while pursuing this from kind of, I don't know, like a, you said there's a the foundation. Is this is this run by the son of Warren Buffett? Is this the yeah. son's? Yeah, yeah. The, the Novo Foundation. So, yeah, he fell in love with like Schumacher and, right. um, you know, other. Another thing that he funds is Cooperation Jackson. He's funded that for a long time. Um, so he's like in love with this idea. He moved here and, you know, he bought a farm here and then the farm became like the hub of all this stuff. Um, but something interesting about our town too, is that um, it, for a very long time, it's been noted in the scientific community as having like one of the most typical mixes of like class and race Um like in the fifties that there was a, a fluoride experiment that was done here because our town had like the most typical composition. Um, and this, this fluoride study was like the, the seminal study that led to like the adoption of fluoride, like across the whole country. So there's like a long tradition here that it's like a very typical town and they're trying to make it a case study that, um, you know, if, if these initiatives can work here, then they can work anywhere. So they're like very invested in doing this. And now that we're in year four of this experiment, 
um, of them like quietly like dominating the local government and um, our social institutions or civil society. Uh, most of the community has no idea what's going on. They're just seeing like all these initiatives happening, um, mm-hmm. and they don't know like what's tying it all together. And um, so it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty interesting experiment. And we talk, we, we talk about it openly and uh, they hate it when we do because <laughs> it relies on the community not really knowing. So, of course, of course, um, man, I, I got so I got I got so many questions and stuff to say about this, but it's it's your it's your interview. No, it's funny. It's, so, it's no. like a reverse interview here. <laughs> That's cool. No, please please do. Like we we live in the the experiment that you like. I mean, you wrote the book nine years ago. I mean, or ten years ago. It came out in twenty eleven. But what when like how long were you working on it? Uh, it was my uh, dissertation, basically. So I started working on it in two thousand and nine. And uh, the dissertation was done in 2011, and then I had a zero as publisher. So I foolishly thought, well, I don't want to write a book that you know might get me a job that no one's going to read. I want to write a political book. So uh, I revised it multiple times and published it in 2012. Uh, and uh, I kind of thought, okay, well, these are the trends I saw, and early 2000s, late 90s. And uh, that was the moment and the moment's gone. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a little surprising in a good way and in a bad way that people are still, still asking me about it. Um, I was interviewed for like a Spanish weekly last year in 2019 on the limits of climate production. I had a bachelor's student who was grazing goats on the London commons, making, uh, what's the word? Like making cheese in the middle of London for goats. Um, uh, it, it's just shocking to me, the kind of resonance that it's had. Mm-hmm. And so I guess there is, but you're right. I mean, that says something about the kind of political ideology that localism has to be understood as i think like yeah. it's not just a flash in the pan because it says something about the, the state we're in right now the conjuncture yeah well one of the themes that i noticed in the book is that how it's it it doesn't challenge neoliberalism at all it's it's like the next iteration of it. it it meshes perfectly well with with how neoliberalism works because it it basically and i i've noticed this throughout um you know this pattern throughout our society is sort of this everything is getting more and more fractured, which is great for markets. Everything is getting sort of like decentralized, fractalized, um, and localism is just uh, another form of, of, it goes hand in hand with neoliberalism. So even though it seems like it's this sort of antidote, it really isn't. And it's, and it's perfect for the sort of petty bourgeois class that lives in between the ruling class and the working class. And it's this sort of way for them to sort of get their frustration about they, they can't they can't do anything. Um, yeah. They're sort of stuck in between one world and another. So it's it's sort of replaced this. Maybe it goes in hand in hand with um, the fact that we don't have religion anymore, and people just sort of mm-hmm. need this this sin to atone for, and they sort of feel guilty sitting in this position of privilege where they can't actually affect any change on the world at the same time. Yeah. What what kind of uh, strikes me about it is that uh, the way localism is now, it it feels almost like a culture war kind of thing where you you have on, Mm -hmm. you have positioned like 
capital has the, the great reset, you know, the thing that like, we're all going to like sit in our little pods and have delivery food delivered to us and be on zoom all day. And then you have localism, which is like the escape from that. And it's the, it's being presented as the alternative. And I think that's, that's what they want to do is like, they want to create the, the vision for just transition, transition towns, localism is that we're going to create these little, these little, uh, microorganisms, you know, these little towns that are, you know, local and everyone's like working 12 hours a day to make potatoes and to prepare their VCRs and stuff. And, uh, but there's no like challenge being mounted. It's just a lifestyle alternative. And, um, but they believe that they're fighting the power and that it's going to like spread and become an alternative. Um, and I, I don't know if you read like that original great reset essay from a few years ago, I didn't know, uh, but they actually like even predict that there are going to be some, like it's, it's built into it that, that there are going to be some lifestyle alternatives where, it's not going to be for everybody. Some people are going to move outside of the cities into these like communities. Uh, and that's where we see ours, you know, as is like one of these lifestyle alternatives that doesn't mount any kind of challenge. It's just a choice that some people are making to not live, you know, not live in this, this way. Um, yeah. but I wanted to ask you, like, what drove you to this analysis? Like I, who hurt you? Like where, <laughs> what, you know, what community were you in or what did you ever observe in your personal experience that uh, drove you to this analysis? Really good question. And it's one that I think I kind of give a different answer depending on the, uh, on the time of day. Uh, I would say that this comes from, yeah, I would say my experience in the mid nine, mid to late nineties uh, as a newly radicalizing student where in Ontario, we had a series of anti-conservative general strikes, uh, city to city, and eventually a province-wide general strike, which is as unthinkable here as you would imagine it to be where you are. This is not a place, this is in France where people <laughs> go on strike every year, you know? Uh, so this was organized in response, kind of the first real hard right new liberal government to come in. This is back in the days of like, you know, slash everything, get the deficit under control. We're living beyond our means. Like, but it was novel back then. It wasn't just kind of weary, like, oh yeah, okay, here we go. So people were pissed. Like they were so upset about it and they, they did something about it and I saw, I saw the growth in consciousness and radicalism. And that's so rare. Like I didn't realize at the time because I was young and I just thought, yeah, this is how movements build. But like to go from, it was organized citywide, to go from city to city, general strike after general strike, you know, shut down London, shut down Hamilton, shut down Sudbury, very small towns. And then to see it getting bigger and bigger and just get the sense, like this incredible sense, like, yeah, we can actually do something here. It's, it's heady. It was just incredible until we had like the big one in Toronto, capital of Ontario, and, you know, 250,000 people on the streets. And these are not, the, the left was not 250,000 people. <laughs> the, uh, well, whatever are you know the various pretensions that existed then and now, uh, you know sectarian divisions and lifestyles and mm -hmm. and blah blah blah, blah were swamped, right? Like there's mm -hmm. it's just such a big crowd that this this stuff doesn't matter. The movement matters, and then for various reasons, largely you know 
this is probably the, the, the Trotskyist in me talking, but betrayals of leadership, it's always betrayals of leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movement got uh, smaller rather than larger. Um, various factions at the top wanted to negotiate settlements that were favorable to them. And so you see this kind of confusion set in. And there's no institutional memory or, or let's say historical memory about how movements grow and what to do when they encounter yep. setbacks. The movement disappears and it's like, okay, we still have our critique. What do we do now? Mm. Now, I think there was a kind of a delayed reaction because of 9-11 and mm. when I, going back a little farther, the global justice movement kicked off a little later, mm-hmm. city to city, similar, anti-G7, anti-G20. 9-11, a bit of upsurge anti-war, but all that starts to peter out around 2004, 2005, I would say. And then think about like the historical impact of all this terrible shit happening and we can't affect it. So we have like new liberalism, we have various financial crises, we have the war on terror, we have the invasion of Iraq and nothing we do seems to matter. And, you know, how many people are on the streets? How many people are passionate to devote years of their life to these incredibly important causes? And, okay, we, we got barbarism, you know? Mm. So at this point I wrote the book, I think that's probably what was making me angriest was this, for me, the answer at the time was obvious. It's like, okay, well, let's look at what's happened in the past. And instead, everyone seemed to be rushing headlong into making the same mistakes they had made 150 years ago with a difference. And this, this occurred to me when you were, you were talking about the, uh, I didn't know, the, the hyper-capitalist transition town, which is kind of news to me. Like reading about the early utopian movements, particularly in the US, these were not wealthy people. And yet they managed to build networks of hundreds of utopian communities with thousands of people that were sustained for at least a generation. Mm-hmm. And now... Like, what do we got? We have petty bourgeois saying, okay, well, I had a business, now I'm going to have business again, and this time it's going to do good. And it's like, we can't change the world, but at least we can, you know, make, make it a little better. Yeah. Who are you? Why are you so negative? Why are you so pessimistic? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like sort of an extension of what the new left was, like this this idea where it was more of a, like an aesthetic sort of separate but together kind of we're all in our own little world and we feel bad about what's happening. Like, yeah, this sort of impotent rage, right. Where, what can we actually do? All we can do is look inward (laughs) and like, we forget how to like collect, right. Like not returning to sort of that like early 20th century, like collectivist labor kind of unity as a class, but more of like more of an, an extension of self-expression as like, you know, it is like the new it's neoliberalism, right? It's new, the new left. I mean, something that I, I there's a, there's a potential here, which I, I feel myself a lot that, Oh, we fucked it up. You know, we had all this potential and it's gone. And once again, re- repeating the mistakes of the past. And I think the, I don't want to say the danger, but if that's the case, it's very easy to turn inward and the left can kind of like, blame itself for its mistakes, which as we know are legion. There is something new about this period. And having myself perhaps uh, cooled on the idea of like, we're not organizing well, we better redouble our efforts. I'm Mm. I'm not that type of person. Um, I really think we have to understand this period, what's unique about it. And 
I, I'm not claiming I have the answers, but something that struck me that I learned while I was writing No Local, where is uh, the infrastructure? You know, where are the communities that would have sustained the left? And this isn't my idea. One of my, one of my mentors and comrades, Alan Sears, uh, has this uh, concept called the, uh, the infrastructures of dissent, such that when movements ebb, there's labor temples, there's churches, there's small businesses, there's unions grouped around a, a collective kind of community, usually single industry towns, uh, and they provide kind of the backbone, the nucleus. And I, I think there's magnificent examples from the past in every locality you could think of that provided this continuity so that when movements fell, people weren't completely disoriented and the petty bourgeois didn't rush in and say, okay, Time for our solution. That's gone. Hmm. And that's, I think, something new. So when you talk about neoliberalism, I think there is something new there. And uh, it has an effect on consciousness that I think we're still kind of coming to terms with. Yeah. You know, the, the term you used in the book that didn't take off, but I liked it a lot, uh, was neo-communitarianism. <laughs> um, and I see that I, I looked at, I tried looking like to see if other people have used that term, uh, but it didn't look like it. But I do think that's where things have gone is that, um, you know, now like those institutions that provide the backbone or that are looked to, to be the, the source of continuity are always NGOs now that are chasing foundation grants that are chasing attention, uh, and clout. And then, which they translate into, you know, very short-term actions, um, and, you know, it's kind of a, mo I'm not singling anyone out. It's just, it's the mode now that like these things that used to be like parts of, you know, very interwoven to, into communities are now like these very, their markets in and of themselves um, because of the foundation money and, you know, just the money involved. Um, and I think, you know, the, the term neo-communitarianism was good because it also talked about like the public private partnerships that, are relied upon for these uh, institutions where they're not really organizing against the state or against capital, but like in concert, it's all, it's, it's like this blob that's just like building momentum and getting larger in size all the time. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like, what, what do you think? Can you like expand on that term neo-communitarianism and am I, am I right to tie that into what you just were talking about? Absolutely. Yeah, I know that that's, I think you're spot on. And I think what maybe new communitarianism came about that out of my shock that some of the, the founders of the localist ideology, a localist theory, were not leftists. I had in my naivety assumed that all the people that were, um, you know, preaching localism were, you know, pretty much like me, but misguided. <laughs> <laughs> as arrogant as that sounds. So it's like, yeah, yeah, we we wanna we wanna create a new society and, and smash the state and, and build up workers' democracy. But you know, maybe, maybe we just have a different way of doing it. And then reading like some of the vicious anti-communism uh sentiments of some of the people that I, I quote in the book, and the sheer bloody-minded privilege of of someone like King Solver, who who's I, I think I hate read that book. Um her um <laughs> animal vegetable miracle mm -hmm. um it, it really dawned on me it's like well no these people are not on our side well these are not on my side they seem to be on their own side and then 
they're forming communities that they claim I'm supposed to be a part of, and there's something wrong with me if I don't want to be. I mean, this this is this goes beyond sheer misguidedness. I started to see it as somewhat really malign and, and almost malevolent. And neo-communitarianism, I mean, it, to me, it kind of captures that sense of like, no, we are our own kind of community of homogenous, let's face it, homogenous classes, mm. uh, uh, quite willing to use and abuse other people to get what we want, which is, a, I guess, a sense of well-being. Yeah. Yeah, that that like I think the word community is really being thrown around a lot these days and and people sort of use it to say like oh we take care of us and um it's like this compulsive kind of gang gang behavior but what's interesting is like you know talking about the root of all this and and that that's really what's striking to me is that this is this is rooted in like Malthusianism it's it's rooted in like sort of saying that uh, in the idea of consumerism, right? Um, and consumerism, which I remember- And pessimism too. Right. And I remember looking this up and consumerism was a, supposedly a term coined by um, the second in command at the F- Ford Motor Company as a way to shift blame away. This is what it says on Wikipedia. I have not like <laughs> looked, looked <laughs> into this. The revolution. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the, the term consumerism would pin the tag where it actually belongs on Mr. Consumer, the real boss and beneficiary of the American system, would pull the rug right out from under our unfriendly critics who have blasted away so long and so loud at capitalism. Somehow I just can't picture them shouting down with consumers. And so what's funny is like, you know, this was written back in 1955, but now Yes, that's exactly what's happening is people are getting mad at the consumers. And, and whenever I get into debates uh, with degrowth people or eco-socialist type people is um, I say, well, your system implies that there is a moral way to consume, that the act of consumption is an act of moral stance. And therefore, you, some people can buy their way into this. Uh, and therefore, the people who cannot afford to purchase in a moral way, in a morally superior way, are therefore immoral. So poor people are immoral. Yeah. I, I mean, you start to go down this like rabbit hole of like, <laughs> what are you implying here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Malthusianism then is, is how can you not end up with yeah. like, damn, those poor people seem to have a lot of kids and drink a lot and don't yeah. do very much work. And, you know, this is so old. Like, this is hundreds of years old. I mean, you could see it as a founding ideology of capitalism. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't aware of the consumer's angle, but you're right, it, it fits right in. Um, or, or I was just recently rereading Road to Wigan Pier, uh, which gets quoted in, in No Local. And uh, Oral George Owell was was so correct about that you know he might have been wrong at some other things but he really had had the number of like what he calls the middle class socialists whose starting point was not the structural contradictions that people find themselves in but the behaviors Mm. that they exhibit in response to these structural contradictions i think starting with behaviors of if you're at all dedicated to human agency, let's say, starting with the behaviors of the people who are supposed to be agents of change, I mean, good luck with that. You know, like yeah. uh, the workers are not going to are not going to be pretty. They're not going to eat what you eat. They're not right. going to drive what you drive. Right. You know? 
No, they're all they're all racist and uh... <laughs> irredeemable. Yes. Yeah. All... Yeah. yeah. Well, why do you? Th- I mean, in your words, like, why do you think that Schumacher's work, you know, that came out in what seventy three, mm-hmm. right after the population bomb came out by Ehrlich? Okay. Um, I think so. I think it came out after population bomb, but uh, I think so. I mean, why do you, why do you think that those ideas gained so much purchase? Um, like, why why did this that book seems like a, if you care about this stuff, I mean, it seems like a major point in history. Like what, what mm-hmm. do you think was so um, engaging about it that, you know, dr- drove so much, uh, not just like the public's imagination, but also foundation money and um, wealthy people have kind of flocked to this ideology in, in many ways. Like what, what, what's about it that is so powerful? <sighs> You know, I wish I could feel the emotion behind that book because I read it as a somewhat kind of alien ideology. And perhaps that's about my own class background as, uh, uh, as a precarious worker. But uh, it seemed to be a system, a kind of an almost a depoliticized system for setting the world to rights. You know, forget about all the messy conflict and the quite shocking accumulation of power and and all the abuse that goes with it. Follow this formula and things will be okay. There was something almost religious to it. It's it's a series of edicts. And I didn't didn't grow up religious. Uh, I I, I don't have that sense of social power. To relate to it, but perhaps, and this conjecture here, but perhaps the people who are drawn to it, it matched the sense of power that they felt in their own lives already. Mm-hmm. So they were petty bourgeois. I know there's a huge amount of debate around professional middle class, and you can go there if you want, but like mm-hmm. just the sense of like people who were not strictly living paycheck to paycheck without a sense of control over their own destiny. They have some capital, they have some land, they have some networks, something that gives them a sense of power. And therefore, the space to think about systems and the kind of system that matches how they would approach the world. Hmm. And I think I can see, I mean, Fox, you mentioned, you know, the, the decline of the new left. I mean, there's something to that, right? Like the, the, the collapse of mass movements hmm. and, uh, the search for alternatives, I mean, led in some very productive directions. I think certainly there was, you know, the seventies were right off. I'm not saying that at all, but the end of mass movement politics or the decline of it, I think leads to this, like, okay, what's the substitute? Well, here's my, you know, Borgia calls it habitus. Here's my habitus. (laughs) I have the ability to think abstractly about systems of change that match how I live. Mm. Here's this book. That would be how I explain it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when you, when you put out your book, um, you know, now that we're, maybe this is the 10 year anniversary, we'll say the podcast is for that, but uh, (laughs) you know, what have the last 10 years been like? Like, Initially, what was the reception like? And um, has your book been used as a, a punching bag for like bad faith arguments by, by localists? Like what, what's been the, the life of the ideas presented in the book that you wrote? I've gotten some criticism from the usual suspects 
I remember there was a positive review from the Socialist Party of Great Britain, which ended with, and then he talks about Lenin, so it was pointless. I mean, I paraphrase, but that was pretty much it, uh, which is, um, I don't know, I, I, I didn't think, I, no, that's not true. I thought the left would have a more serious engagement. And, and I don't mean in the sense it's like, why didn't everyone read my book? Like, whatever, there's enough books to read, so I'm not saying that's the one, but... It's because you were too I, early on it. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> it's funny. I know my partner says that. Um, I, I wonder, like, was it the case that in 2012, um, people still felt there was hope in this kind of, like, tinkering around the edges with a broadly, at least in the U.S., let's say, a broadly liberal administration Uh there was not, um, I mean, how do we recover? Yeah, there was that kind of mirage recovery from 2008, 2009, when all the money had finally been given to the banks and we hadn't had to pay for it yet. Um, I don't know. I, but, but at the same time, the, 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 uh, the contradictions were there for anyone to look at, right? Like the yeah. massive decrease in homeownership, the, the, the terrible like, uh, trajectory of millennial you know, generational wealth uh, and, and let's, let's not to be too generational about it, the, the terrible prospects for so many baby boomers who were left out of the, uh, you know, the, the property kind of boom, let's put it. So why didn't people look more closely and see this coming? I don't know. I mean, there's been scattered engagement and, and more than I expected. I think the book sold like, I don't know, a couple of thousand copies or something. That was, was more than I was hoping for. Um, but at the same time, was this the, the, you know, was localism to be the end result of all the incredible organizing coming out of the global justice movement, the anti-war movement that people gave so much of their time for? I mm. mean, if that's the case, that's, that's quite a depressing statement. Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, something that I think current that's going on that makes me think about it is uh, what's happening in Texas right now that, mm. uh, you know, many people are, sucked into the the culture war of like oh i i like these small is beautiful kind of uh decentralized grids that um you know everyone should have solar panels panels on their house and they like it's just a culture war like uh mirroring of what libertarians are saying they're like you know a mayor of one town in texas was like everyone should have their own generator everyone you know we shouldn't be relying on like anybody to provide power for us and it's like you know like uh, small as beautiful leftists and libertarians are like coming to the same conclusion Mm. just with different like instead of solar panels you have your own personal like coal smelter or something like that what's what's so scary about this idea of localism as the solution from a leftist perspective is that it has to be so precise in its execution. It has to have these perfect conditions. Otherwise it turns right into like eco-fascism or, you know, libertarianism or whatever, you know, it, it, yeah. it, it like needs the perfect conditions to exist. And it's, it, which is why it's, uto- it's utopian. And it's like, why are we saying like, let's we're trying to achieve something where it it has to go just right otherwise it'll go terribly wrong like why are we saying that that's a good idea and i think it's sort of the um not to 
always bring it back to Mark Fisher, but this idea that like people can't um, can't imagine the end of capitalism um, and they just have to sort of cope with what exists now and try to imagine ways to make it nicer. Um, like when people always say like, why do you hate, why do you hate liberals more than conservatives? Um, and it's because, well, cause liberalism is the problem itself. I mean, or it just, you know, it's sli- it slides down into these very undesirable outcomes. So we should be addressing the issue of liberalism and capitalism, not just saying, oh, let's, let's think of different ways to make capitalism and liberalism work better for us. Um, yeah, yeah. And I'll say this for the conservatives, you know, as much as I despise them, at least you know where they stand. Yeah. Uh, they're they're yeah. honest about their hatred of poor people and minorities <laughs> and, and everybody else. Yeah, right. I, I, see, I see them as just um, more potentially coachable, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. they, they kind of see the at least the people who are like of lower class, lower class yeah. conservatives that kind of see contradictions a little bit more clearly and are a little bit more honest about it. You just kind of need to guide them into like, okay, well, here's why all that's happening. A lot, a lot of these people get primed for um, conspiracy theories like QAnon and whatnot, because they're looking for answers to this. And that's our opportunity to say, yeah, here's what's happening. Um, so I, yeah, that's where I see a little bit yeah. more potential with people who might be a little bit more socially conservative, but of the lower working class. Uh, I want to go back to um, Schumacher because, and for the listeners, Schumacher is the guy that is the granddaddy of localism. He wrote a seminal book about it in 1973. Uh, So you're absolutely savage on him in this book. Uh, And I think like something you say at one point is that he like, he had a fundamental misunderstanding about um, the theory of value um, where he exchanged, he can left out uh, use. What was it? I think he left out exchange value or he left out. Yeah. yeah. Um, So something that's interesting that uh, we've observed here is that, uh, you know, there is this obsession with bartering and exchange of things uh, in our, transition town experiment one of the interesting examples is that uh there's a fest an art festival where it's it's marketed as artists bartering um their art for medical care and basically uh you know the idea is that art (laughs) well the medical care is basically just like acupuncture dental treat dental thing like very small right things you can get done in a day Um, okay and so the thing is that a, a major, the most visible component of the festival are these giant murals that uh, artists, you know, from around the country come in, they've made over 30 murals. And uh, what ends up happening is that the exchange, yes, the exchange happens where a muralist uh, does work on a, on a mural and they receive medical attention, medical care, but then the mural stays there on the property and it raises the value of the property by tens of thousands of dollars and then developers buy the property and use it to like justify charging massive rents and the surrounding neighborhood. There's a lot of pressure on the renters there because, you know, it's the mural uh, creates the impression of a hip up and coming neighborhood. Um, and that reminds me so much of what you said in the book that like, they're so obsessed with the exchange, but they forget about the, uh, the use, uh, the use value, I guess, right. Of the, the thing that the thing that they create remains there and it's like 
becomes valuable. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. That is fascinating. <laughs> um, and also just exchanging for medical care as, as someone from a socialized medicine country, <laughs> this concept is somewhat foreign to me. Um, it's wild. Yeah. And they yeah. say they support single payer and all that stuff, but I mean, still like the fact remains that it's, it's a, a privileged exchange that, that happens that when it leaves behind like an asset of that's yeah. worth tens of thousands of dollars and, you know, somebody made it for like uh, an afternoon of like acupuncture and massages and, you know, it's, it's mind blowing. It is. It is. And I think this is where, I mean, I, I simply adopted uh, David Harvey's concept of the spatial fix. And I just thought, well, Special fix, let's just be clear, David Harvey says that capital that cannot find productive investment will temporarily root itself somewhere in the hopes of generating value through real estate. That's just one of the ways that it augments itself. So uh, buildings is one example, or infrastructure, or fine art, or wine, or... It always comes back to private property, doesn't it? private property that establishes uh, rents that some yeah. there's something unique about this particular place or thing that cannot be reproduced somewhere else and so i just thought okay well it kind of sounds like community gardens are, are in a really kind of you know a very minor way performing the same role but it sounds like in your town uh the the labor of uh localists is performing that in quite a major way in yeah. fact oh yeah and uh, and so to that extent, can localism uh, just, or let's say barter in this case, just be seen as another tool for, for capital to uh, self-augment? And I, I don't see any problem with that model. It seems to be very clearly what's happening. Yeah, we have, we have some community gardens here too, right? We have, all, we, ha- we have basically anything that sounds cool, hip and local, but um, yeah. which is why our property value, we were, we were literally featured in Bloomberg as the number one locality in the U.S. for uh, the rising, rising home prices. Yeah, there's another funny one. Um, maybe we'll use this as the, the featured image of this podcast, but <laughs> one of the local production things that is being presented as a something that will fight climate change, a pilot project, if you will. This, another point that you made in the book was that uh, local production uh, incentivizes artisanal things that the working class can't afford or engage with. Um, so something that's actually being presented as being uh, confrontational to climate change is uh, this schooner, this like uh, basically like a, a wind ship, you know, a sailboat, uh, that goes up and down the Hudson River, and they were written up in uh, Architectural Digest because they are transporting artisanal throw pillows um, from one <laughs> river made town from, made from recycled materials. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, from one river town to another, and then so then they arrive in the port. They have the pillows, and then a bike courier shows up <laughs> and uh, transports the pillows up into <laughs> up this giant hill. Um, into this like boot- very boutique, um, you know, marketplace that's in a historically black neighborhood that's rapidly gentrifying, mm-hmm. and in Hudson, all- right? In Hudson, in, in Kingston, it's moving from Hudson to Kingston. Oh, right. And uh, yeah, and this is being presented as like this is this is climate justice, y'all. You know, we. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
this is mercantilism, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going backwards. Oh, no, I yeah. think I was just I was just listening to a really great podcast yesterday about this new book that won't well, actually no, the book came out last year, but they just interviewed the guy. Um, I can't even remember his name, but he's writing about how we're in like this neo-feudalism. We're transitioning into like a neo-feudalist era, which is exactly what it feels like to me. I mean, it's like, you know, Alex brought up this, this theory to me, which I see is coming true more and more is that there's these two competing visions that, but they're not really competing where half of half of the world or you know most of us will be transitioned into this sort of like wally future right where everything is like um delivered to you and delivered to you delivered everything is gig economy everything is like walmart just these everything everything is just this like sort of big big industry we just have to sit in our pods and eat our bugs and 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 then there's the alternative lifestyle which is the localist degrowth lifestyle which is only for people who can afford it you know it's this more sort of mm-hmm. fetishizing like you know the good old days when you could go to the marketplace and you know talk to the butcher and like you know have your little backyard chickens and um but but you have to like be rich to or at least, you know, upper middle class to be able to afford this kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no exclusivity either because people with more resources can go back to the great reset hell world when it's convenient for them and they can get something shipped from China or, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, and then they come back to the, the localist place when they, you know, they get sick of it and they need to get away. Uh, so Greg, like, you know, you mentioned in the book too. Um, so like how much work it is, how much labor it takes to, to make like a basic meal uh, using locally sourced ingredients. I mean, can you talk a little bit more, about, a little bit about that, that, um, I mean, I, I use the, the ridiculous example, like we all have to work in a localist community. We'd all have to work 12 hours a day to like eat some potatoes for dinner. I mean, how far off is that of an exaggeration? Of course, I, I would have to uh, go back and do a commodity chain analysis of, of potatoes. But I mean, just as a thought <laughs> experiment, like what about the the pots, the water to, to assume you're having mashed potatoes, yeah. the tools, um, the uh, the kitchens, the maintenance, the, the the roads to transport those potatoes, the uh, the, the bicycle parts, um, the uh, the in shapeness of the courier, like there's yep. just so many things that spread immediately beyond the local. And one of the, I think the, the, the facileness, if that's a word of localist analysis is it just exists reflecting its petty bourgeois background. Mm-hmm. It exists as consumer buying things from the merchant. Mm-hmm. That's the only concept of local, mm-hmm. but this is, this is the only kind of site that the, Petty bourgeois sees, right? They've and, got this and good. the friends you make along the way too. Like who, <laughs> who you run into at the market, and then you you see like someone having you see like someone's uh someone having an affair at the farmer's market. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like remember. intrigue of um, in the book he, t- he Greg talks about how that's like the only place that the, that this you know class of people mm-hmm. has to like socialize is like at the market <laughs> buying things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like who this is the thing, like. I was kept reading, particularly in King Solver, like I kept reading about this, like, you know, there's a longing for community and, and through the market. I thought like, I mean, 
who gets that big of a thrill from doing their shopping? Like, don't you have anything better to do? Oh my God. You have to come to the farmer's market here in Kingston because (laughs) I I take it. They don't. (laughs) (laughs) It's a spectacle to behold for sure. Well, that, that just, I mean, yeah, there you go. I mean, that just, that just says something about like how, first of all, is such a limited prospect. It's, it's, it's imaginatively like sterile to think that this tiny segment of wealthy people who cares about that stuff, who achieves their kind of, again, using Bourdieu's term, habitus, their, their sense of identity and separateness from everyone else who achieves that through local markets versus I don't know, the international club circuit, racing vintage cars. I mean, you name it, right? There's so many other things that rich people can do with their money. So you already have this narrow segment of people who care about this stuff. And then, as you say, it depends totally on this narrow segment having the resources to do it. So it cuts out another 95% of people. So, and if it was just a hobby for the rich, I'd have no problem with it, to be honest, because like, whatever. I mean, rich people do crazy stuff. That's what they got the money for. Uh, But- it's when it becomes, and maybe this is the liberalism that you're talking about, when it becomes a strategy for the left, yes. that's when I object. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, okay, do your shit, but don't try to tell me it's going to change the world because it's not. Absolutely. Right. 100% agree with that. Yeah, I think that's the danger of the left is that, because the, the thing is with localism, there are many notions that are agreeable and that I think we all want. We all yearn for, commu- for community. We all yearn uh, to have bonds with other people where we live in person, um, you know, we all yearn to, to be able to go outside and this year particular. feel the sun. Yeah. Feel the sun on our, yeah. our skin, you know? Uh, but uh, these ideas have been recuperated so thoroughly and it's, uh, you know, the trap is in the face of what we're, we're facing as a society is to like treat it like a panacea that, you know, we just need to go back to localism. Um, we need to like the left needs to talk about localism because these ideas have been recuperated and it's been, it's not just a new thing. It's been going on for 50 years at least. Um, well, now you, modern can sh- iteration. you can shop local at, at Amazon. That's like their big push now is like, yeah, you can shop, you can support local business at Amazon. So right. if, if you can do wow. it at, at Amazon, like really how revolutionary <laughs> is it? After they managed to destroy how many local businesses through their, uh, their predatory pricing practices. Yeah. I know it reminds me of that drawing of uh, that ghoulish painting of from Goya, I think, mm-hmm. right. Who with the, yeah. the uh, what's his name eating his children. Uh, I can't oh. think of the. <laughs> I've got it in my mind. I know exactly. Uh, what you my mean. art his art history is failing me at the moment, <laughs> but um yeah yeah you know uh, another interesting tie-in uh is the agricultural tie-in right because we were talking about how much goes into like agriculture and like you know i I always like to think of like i I wish these people would just watch naked and afraid and see like if you really like want to do a like degrowth localism thing check out how like people who are just dropped into africa (laughs) with no resources Mm -hmm. how well they do you know with no modern Mm -hmm. you know shit and it's we don't want to return to that why would we and the working class like it's it's not appealing to the working class because people who are struggling don't want less so like it's it's inherently like yeah we should be advocating for people 
to be able to consume way more than they already do. Like the, the majority of the population yeah. needs more stuff uh, or, need, you know, needs the ability to buy more stuff if they need it. Uh, you know, like Lee Phillips sometimes uses the phrase, like we need to take over the machines, not shut down the machines. Um, yeah. yeah. This is like, I don't know. You know I, I spent a number of years in uh, South Korea and uh, I really, saw kind of the limits of this, let's say, leftist lifestyleism that seems to be so prevalent here, that there's a very, very tiny percentage of people, like count them in the hundreds, who would think that their lifestyles can change anything because being too poor to have enough to eat is within living memory. Like there's mm-hmm. millions of people still alive who, you know, were, were scavenging in the, in the 60s and 70s and uh, try telling those people to consume less. Like, right. That's, uh, that's a deep insult. And that's the foundation you know, of a working class movement is to <laughs> tell them that they consume too much and that they, Make they live like, bad. tell them Start that yourself. they live like billionaires compared to people in Africa. And yeah, I know. And they'll be on your side. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. And tell them is, about you know, their privilege. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's a whole other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can of worms. Can of worms. Yeah. But, but the thing is, I don't want to, like, I want to give degrowth its due in the sense that, you know, it should be one of the, I would say the tenets of Marxism that capitalism is cancerous. Like it cannot stop growing or else it dies. And this is destroying the planet. And I think we see the evidence all around us. I mean, the, the, the broken up Gulf Stream freezing Texas just being the latest one. So there, it, I think it is true. We need some sort of, well, we, all growth should be democratically managed. And I would like to think that give people enough control over their lives and autonomy to do what they want, make them work less so that they don't aren't constantly working to survive and they're rewarding themselves. Consumption will actually fall right. on useless things. Yes. And collective social consumption of the things we need. And I'm not a localist in this. I don't think we all need our craft musical instruments and our jam jars. I mean, I, I personally, I don't know, maybe everyone needs PS5s, whatever it be, but like the, oh, yeah. the th- collective things we need can be shared or at least distributed rationally so that we're not yeah. overproducing and completely exceeding the, uh, the capacities of the earth just to sustain us. Um, and yeah. I don't, the problem I think is when we leave degrowth to the localists, it mm. takes on this particular kind of moral twist, mm-hmm. which as you say, is all about blaming poor people. Mm-hmm. And it should be like, the question I think should be, why is it that we live in a system where you don't have enough mm-hmm. and you never feel like you have enough? Mm-hmm. Like when did the left abandon this? It's critique of alienation to put it theoretically. Yeah. And you know, I really think we need to, we need to get that back because, you know, who is happy in this capitalist system? Who feels right. fulfilled? Right. And I doubt even the localists do, to be honest, although they put right. up a good front. Well, so, you know, yeah. And uh, what I, what I think I agree with you on is that the theory of change, I, uh, I don't, I don't, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind if people decided that they wanted to degrow the economy. If, if we got to a place where we actually, everyone had a say and exactly. that's what everyone decided, exactly. I wouldn't, I, you know, I would, I'd be interested in the conversation, well, that, but, but the thing is that the theory of change is like, if you lead with degrowth, if that's your yeah. North star that you're telling people that you want them to consume less and that, yeah. uh, 
that that's going to be the path forward to saving the planet. Like, I just don't, I think it's like a totally quixotic quest of like, you know, this, this thing that I I can't think of anyone that's like behind on the rent, you know, saying like, Oh, I need to consume less. That's, that's what we need to focus on. It's this delusion that we have control that we have a say we need to have a say before we can, you know, degrowthers say, well, we need to, uh, take control or we need to uh, do all these things for the environment as if we have say over it. We don't have say over it. We're being bratty. We need to first have control and then we can fix the environment because otherwise we're just doing whatever those in charge want us to. And we will slide into eco-fascism or, you know, whatever these like eco-capitalism, we will slide into these things because the first thing we need to address is having control over our economies. And then we can decide to scale some things down and, and scale some things up and redistribute, but but it's it's delusional to me that that these degrowth eco-socialist people think that we we have a say in the first place because we don't we don't have a say and we that we need to address that first and foremost i mean i'll tell you i want instant degrowth of the uh, of the military i i, I would see like 100 <laughs> yeah. percent degrowth there is well, there, no yeah. <laughs> problem whatsoever uh which is a major polluter in its own right i mean i think there's there's so much useless tech that gets produced is so much useless transportation that gets produced um but you do that i think i make this point in the book like you do that without democratic control and how i mean it's being a bit pejorative not yeah, bit devil's advocate, but like, how do you not end up uh, returning to your to your holiday in Cambodia? You know? Yeah, yeah, and and the swing back, the backlash of like, oh, saying like, oh, hundred percent, you know, military degrowth. Yeah, of course, in theory, like, I'm all for that, but like, what theory of change would even allow that to happen without a massive retaliation? I mean, wouldn't the military like get really pissed off and like yeah. take over the country? With oh, or like, or all the people who rely <laughs> on the weapons mi- on us, or all the people who rely on the military for their income. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is true, and I think this is. I but it just gets back to your point about the need for democratic control and buy-in. It's the same reason. I mean, I think this this debate was repeated in different ways over the uh, you know tree huggers versus loggers, and you know defend the spotted owl versus uh, keep our jobs kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, you know, we can't, it's not reactionary to want a job and to, to apply your skills to something that makes you happy and earns you a decent wage. Yeah. Uh, but the question is like, what, what kind of social use is coming out of that? And I think there's some, I mean, incredible initiatives just now. Um, I'm thinking one in Canada called Iron and Earth. Uh, and it's about uh, workers in the oil industry who are also environmentalists and see the damage that's being done to indigenous lands and want and advocate for the oil companies to pay for new industries and retraining for workers to create renewable energy, for example. And that's not even degrowth, that's kind of regrowth, to be honest, mm. but in a kind of ecologically sustainable democratic way. And, you know, if I see any uh let's say uh, i see any bright green shoots for social movements it's those kinds of uh you know worker controlled environmentalism that i would i would support please please tell me about buffett because like the the irony of like the best localist community in the country being built with the money of 
the Buffett family is. Um, yeah. It's pretty great, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he uh, basically like, you know, him and his other siblings all have like their own billion dollars that they get to spend as they like. And, uh, you know, he, he ended up, so the thing is like, he also, um, you know, he's in like a, a few different areas that he focuses on. Like one is this localist re- creating regenerative economy stuff. Another area is like indigenous supporting indig- indigenous struggles and stuff like that. And what's interesting is that, um, his dad owns the railroads that transport oil in the country. And, like he owns 25% of all the railroads that transport oil. So the sick irony is that, you know, the organizing that P- Peter supports leads to pipelines getting shut down hmm. and it leads to this regulatory capture that his dad then controls, you know, he, his dad con- profits from the shutdown of the pipelines. It's, it's gotcha. really sick. Gotcha. And then the money, and then the money from that goes back to, Peter uh, to fund kind of these identitarian struggles. Um, So it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. And then as he, as he admits himself, like the money creates dynamics that are impossible for learning, Mm -hmm. but he decided, you know, uh, he, he's doing something and kicks in uh, where maybe he believes it's small enough here that he can like control for all the negative side effects, but he's not, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he thinks he is possible. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's crazy. You know, uh, you know, another thing too, that you, you mentioned like that we need these democratically controlled movements to move forward on stuff. Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard too, because I think a lot of, a lot of movements now and the direction that things are going in is for these like minoritarian things where like, they're trying to manage populist sentiments by creating kind of like these, these workshops and, um, you know, community engagement sessions that aren't really like the pop, the kind of populist uh, majoritarian things where like everyone's like, everyone sees their self-interest in something and they like opt into it. They want it. They want to do something about it. It's more about kind of workshopping and like, reflecting people's words back to them to yeah, make them we were heard. just we were just talking to george Orr about this about um what was it Ex- extinction rebellion does these uh what are they called the people's assemblies right so we were talking to george about how people's assemblies and how they're sort of being replaced um with actual sort of consensus community consensus where they they're more like uh, market research groups where they just take a like a jury of people and ask them sort of like for feedback and then they they sort of like cater these programs back to the people and say oh see we're getting all this community buy-in when really they're not they're just they're kind of like hand-picking people to sort of get get the results that they want um yeah it's at the worst i guess or the best they're kind of um really not getting across uh, sampling or section that they think they are. Yeah. So it's like it, it, these things all kind of go hand in hand, right? Where the this sort of, in order for localism to work, we have to, we kind of have to, they have to like force people to think that this is what the community wants when they're really 
they're they're silent they're act, they're actively like silencing people who are criticizing it in order to force through the programs that they want and it's you know there's a lot of reactionary conservative types who are starting to catch on to this here and they they hate it and i'm like yeah because it's it's not they're they've come in and they're just deciding a small group of people are kind of deciding what to do here yeah and, and they're selling it as uh is good for us. Yeah. yeah and, and something that's in the pattern, if you look at like the real estate marketing and the, some of the puff pieces that uh, New York Times and stuff have done, uh, they say things like, well, people are, are, commu- are attracted to this community because of the sense of community. And uh, it's interesting because it's like, they're, they're not, there's not a real community. It's, it's a sense of community. We replaced that and I feel like, you know, an actual democracy, you would have a, a more than a sense of community. It would be a tangible thing where everyone feels ownership, um, that it's their community too. And instead we replace that with a sense of community, which, um, it's an undefinable yeah. sense of community where the people in the community are swappable. It doesn't matter who particularly yeah. they are. They're just whoever happens to be here. So that's the problem when these people all talk about community is they're not interested in protecting the existing community. They're interested in just creating a community, whoever it might be, whoever is lucky enough to be here. There's some really interesting scholarship back coming out of the UK in the 1970s, where I think there was a movement to the community for consultation and empowerment and some critical sociologists were asking, well, hold on, who gets, who counts as part of the community? And I mean, this continued right up through the eighties and nineties. And I'm, I'm probably misquoting my researchers here, but like Nigel Thrift, I think did some of this work where they looked at who's being consulted with. Like when you want to regenerate someplace and you talk to the community, who exactly are you speaking with? Mm. And it was always the people who had pre-existing social networks mm-hmm. and had yeah. some money were probably business owners. It wasn't, Elite it wasn't capture. the folks. Uh, I'm sorry. Elite capture. Elite capture. Okay. Yeah. So in that case, is it really consensus? I mean, consensus is a terrible word as it is, but you know, it's creating consensus, let's say, out of mm-hmm. out of thin air. And it just elides kind of class differences that exist within within these communities. Yeah. Uh, so I hundred percent agree. I, I find like the, the word community itself, it makes my skin crawl because it's mm-hmm. such a seductive notion. Mm-hmm. Like as you said, Alex, like who doesn't want community? You know, it's, it sounds so warm and fuzzy, but I think precisely for that reason. We uh, we have to be really specific about what we what we mean. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think if it if you if you start to see corporations with their like joke Twitter accounts uh, mm-hmm. saying words like community and uh, you know you know it's been fully recuperated. Like if you see Wendy's, you know, oh, yeah. ap- apologizing to the Wendy's community, <laughs> uh, you know, for some like joke that went too far, then uh, there's probably something weird going on. Um, so you, the book came out 10 years ago and obviously life has gone on for you. Um, I heard you you have a new book coming out. Um, so I just wanted to ask, like, you know, you, you put the book out and it got the reception it got. Um, now you have your, your upcoming book coming out. So uh, what have you learned like in the last 10 years that that is building on no local um, to, to lead to your analysis now? Awesome. Thank you. That's wow. That is a really good question. And, and I probably don't have as clear an answer prepared as, <laughs> as I might have hoped. Um, so I think 
Okay. Part of this is my own confusion over, I think the last part of No Local, which if you reading today, I'm not sure I would have been so sanguine over this is the way forward to rebuild our movements to take on capital. Yeah. Because if you read that chapter- Prescriptive. Thank you, prescriptive. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we need grassroots socialist movements to challenge state power from below to regain money, which will regain people's confidence. And it's like, I don't know, I think I'm kind of restrating the uh, transitional program from 1938. It's like demands that stretch the bounds of capital and show off the, you know, the uh, illegitimacy of the states. <sighs> yeah, life is more complicated than that. And I think that's what I've learned in the last 10 years. So it's not that I disagree with, shall we say, the insurrectionary thrust of no local. I mean, I want it to be true. I'm just not so sure it tells the whole story. I think it's a mm. lot more complicated. Uh, and so I think the last 10 years, I'm not going to deny this is me getting out of the comfortable graduate student bubble away from the uh, graduate student left milieu that I, was, uh, that I was a part of where everything seemed to make so much sense uh-huh. and uh, being precarious in my country and South Korea being precarious again in my country um, and uh, just being thrust into totally new environments where people don't really care what the left says or does. And they, most people, you know, you can take me up on this, but like in my experience, most people do not share our terms or our frames of reference. So then why are we so confident about asserting them? Mm. And, and that kind of realization has been incredibly difficult for me because I have, you know, hundreds, thousands of human hours of labor in books beside me being very confident in asserting the perspective, like this is what we must yeah. do. Mm. So my, my latest book, speaking of human labor hours, um, is uh, on escapism. And it came out of the realization that most people are, A, not reactionary. They're not, you know, raging conservatives. But they're also not insurrectionary leftists. Mm -hmm. Most people are getting by. Mm -hmm. And the only response I've seen, well, okay, response from the right is um, yes, let's build this fantasy. You know, let's we can we can make it ancient Rome again, and we'll all be citizens, and everyone else will be slaves. But the response from the left is, and this will be no surprise, is face reality. You know, you uh, what's that old slogan? Um, if you're not if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. And I've started to think maybe this is part of the problem. Not because we want people to live in a fantasy world, but because most working people whose lives are very difficult already know how much things suck. Hmm. You know, they might not have the theoretical language, um, or, or should they? But they know in a way much more viscerally than I would say, I'm going to make a, a very abstract category here, the left theorist, which I guess I am one, or I want to be much more viscerally how terrible capitalism is. So what are we doing preaching to them about? Like, you know, you must resist, you must rise up. Are you worried and, about being called a Nazbol for this? <laughs> oh God. So that's why there's the, the I, I have a section on right escapism right at the beginning of the book. Uh, and, and I go after Peter Thiel and, um, and uh, the various Nazis whose names don't deserve mention. Um, um, the, um, 
the idea that we need to create a new myth, I am dead set against. This is not, this is not what I'm saying. Um, I am, however, saying that the, the stories that we tell ourselves have liberatory potential. And so the book goes through um, what the experience of wage labor is like for most workers and how escapism is a vital part of getting through the day. Uh, It goes through the trauma, the developmental trauma of uh, family and social life and capitalism and how so many people emerge from that uh, addicted or uh, or just alienated, full of uh, neoliberal selfhood to you know make themselves better to survive, and uh, and it even goes into some because I didn't want to be too depressing. It goes into some of the liberatory I would call escapist cultures of uh, techno hip hop and some literary examples at the end as well. So the book touches on localist economics, what I think got to be called everyday utopianism. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but came out, I think, five, 10 years, five years ago, maybe. And uh, this idea of basically what you're talking about, if we, what, what happens if we practice utopia in our everyday lives by building community, blah, 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 all the stuff that you experience in Kingston. And it doesn't have a prescriptive end, except that we need to take I would say the escapist impulse of working people much more seriously because it displays the kind of world that, that, that we, let's say, want to build. Mm-hmm. And we can't simply elide that by saying, no, fight back. So you're saying instead of uh, being so obsessed with raising people's consciousness or changing their consciousness, you think they already have the consciousness and we just need to listen to it. Wow. I wish I'd written that on the back. Yeah, that's that's a very uh, succinct way. There's still time. <laughs> You're right. I'll blurb you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't got the proofs yet, so I can edit it. Um, yeah, no, this this is true. There's so little listening done on on the left. And uh, with, a, I don't know, I will tell a slightly melodramatic story and then and, uh, leave it at that. But I mean, I remember... Okay, so I was commuting to work. This is in, in Seoul in South Korea. And I was commuting to work and uh, I was at the, the busiest train station uh, in, in the country. And I was taking a bus at the busiest bus platform at the country. And the uh, hundreds, hundreds of people surrounding me, I'm waiting for my bus. And there's one guy sitting down in the road in front of me. It's cross-legged. So I go over to him. And like my Korean is non-existent, so I have to speak in English. So I just like, okay. And I'm the only person talking to him. And uh, he says, you know, I want to die. I, my, 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 my life, life tarred, life terrible, you know, broken English. And then he's, and the buses are literally going around him because he's sitting in the bus lane. And the then he starts apologizing for not knowing english i'm like oh my god dude you're like sitting in the road stop apologizing for your language and and eventually the police come and they're not very nice to him it seems but they get him out of the road and at that point my bus comes and i'm like well i can't do anything else i don't know this guy i don't speak the language i gotta get on my bus and the response like 
and I'm not, how can I put this? Like when I spoke about it to my colleagues, uh, the response I got was kind of like, you know, he was looking for attention. (laughs) I thought like, okay, so something's going on here that I'm missing, right? Because like, pardon me, and I'm, I'm not being political about this. It was just like, oh my God, look at this guy. Someone has to do something. I should do something about it. And nobody was. Hundreds of people were looking. Nobody was doing anything. And then when I did something, I'm not sure it made much of a difference. And no one seemed to think it makes much of a difference. And I thought, okay, well, no one's, no one actually listened to this guy. Like, and, and I don't mean in this kind of like charity, let's start up helplines. Let's mm-hmm. listen. I mean, that's all mental health care is necessary, but that's not really where I'm going with this. I more mean that we we have, I think, if we can, if we want to change society, we have to consider the human material that we're working with, and the human material we're working with is extremely damaged. Mm-hmm. And if we if we don't listen to where people are at, and we just start with this kind of idealized working class figure who is supposed to take the reins, I think that might be to tie it in. I think that might be a reason that our audiences remain fairly small and the localists who have the virtue of this kind of class connection can capture the revolutionary imagination. Yeah. I, I think that, that that's important is to really like the, the working class has to lead, like the people have to lead we have to put our trust in them. I think what, what ends up happening a lot is that um, in, in our neoliberal societies is those stories kind of get fetishized and turned into just another commodity for consumption of people who feel guilty. And they're like, Oh, we need to uplift the voices. We need to center the voices, the bodies and spaces kind of thing. And it turns into, I mean, when we've done local organizing um, here in Kingston and you know, sort of pleading with the aldermen to help pass you know, rent control and, you know, tenant protections. And they just say, you know, well, we just need to hear more stories. If you can gather people up and, you know, let, you know, so we can hear their stories. And and it's like, we did, we did. And it doesn't, it doesn't, (laughs) like, yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, I think like what you're saying is, you know, really look to look to the people, but don't just like, sort of fetishize them and put them in this sort of like gilded cage kind of like you know think of their stories and struggles as just a commodity for us to um you know that's a really good way of putting it and i yeah i hadn't considered that angle before and i I guess i just i would add this idea of a nascent as soon as we put them in this gilded cage as you say and attach the category revolutionary worker, let's say, I think we are stepping farther. I think we're creating ideology. I think we're stepping Mm. farther away from our goal. Mm -hmm. And as comfortable as those categories are or can can be, because we want to feel powerful, we want to feel the world is on side, we are on the right side of history, we're on our way to changing the world. Mm. If we're only talking to ourselves with those categories, a, we miss the realities of real people, but B, we end up denouncing those workers when they don't seem to want to listen. Hmm. It's like, man, they seem to want to spend more time watching Netflix. Hmm. Are they sheep? Yeah. Are, they, are they the sheeple? It's like, no, there is something real there about life 
as an alienated individual under, under in late capitalist society that I think we have to rejig our messaging somehow, listen, but in an active way, not collecting stories in this, as you say, this liberal uplift dogma, not at all, but redirect our energies away from, let's say, the comfortable messages mm. towards a much more, I don't know, one that speaks to people's pain. And as much as I hate to admit it, I think the, I think the right in some ways yeah. has done that really successfully. Yes. Bingo. Yes. And I, I think that there's like a culture of fear about regular people in our country where everyone thinks mm. like poor people are just like nasty Trump supporters. Oh, you know, some people, some of the sentiment towards people in Texas right now who don't have power, they're like, see, well, they voted for Trump. That's what they get. Da, 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 da. And it's oh like, my God. yeah, I, I know it's <laughs> brutal. It's brutal. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people have this sentiment that like the, the, the poor, um, bigots, you know, ever mm. like the poor working class are, they're all filled with like this bigoted ideology and they first need to accept all the, like, you know, all this sort of wokeness, um, mm. before, before we can give them any kind of help, they need to be indoctrinated into the, the, the temple of wokeness and like respecting all identities and yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah. and, and, and that's not to say that I think that, um, we should just embrace bigotry and racism and of course not. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't withhold um, our solidarity with our fellow working class um, yeah. over this issue. What happens is we build the solidarity, the economic solidarity with our class brethren. And then yeah. we say, but you know, once we have, you know, this power, this power as a class, then we can say like, okay, now like, we want to make sure everyone has has what they need, and 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 these these tensions, these bigoted tensions, kind of resolve each other because they mostly are a product of people being scared and isolated, yeah. and see and using scapegoat, you know, falling into that scapegoat ideology of like, well, I don't have this because there's this type of person out there that's yeah. from getting. But it. if but if you give them a locally grown tomato, then the racism is expelled from them. <laughs> that's they share it. That's, but, that's, no. that's what they're doing here. That's the mm. pattern, the, the marketing right. pattern that they use is that, uh, you know, people here, like all the nastiness in our community will go away once people are uh, eating locally grown tomatoes and then they do some yoga and then yeah. they learn how to like till the soil, you know, that we're all going to like just ascend. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I think in, they're right in the sense that the people who might not agree with that are going to be priced out of the community mm, and yeah. maybe commute there in the day. But I, I think if I can just add one small thing, you know, I, I was glued to the television in, in uh, January 6th, uh, the wherever you ride insurrection, mm. what have you. Mm. And I got really disturbed with the way the coverage was framed in the following days, because I mean, yeah, okay, these people, this is like out and out fascists. Um, I got no zero sympathy with them. But then I was reading some of the, like they'd interview Trump supporters to make fun of them. And the Trump supporters were talking about, you know, corrupt elites stealing Washington. And the liberals were saying, you know, our hallowed halls, our democratic mm -hmm. tradition. I'm like, wait, hold up here. Like, I, I don't believe in the hallowed halls and democratic tradition. I don't believe in, 
it seems very clear that this nasty, murderous fascism has captured the genuine complaints that so many poor poor people have. And I, I've been reading this kind of like since then, oh, you know, they're all middle class. They're all petty bourgeois. <laughs> sure. Maybe the cadre of the Trump movement is petty. We know that's the basis of fascism, but that it, it wasn't 50 million people at the White House. That was like 6,000 or so. Like, yeah. what about the people who weren't there? And, who, and most of the people there were like bust in anyway. They were just normal, people. you know, like normal people just kind of yeah. like standing around outside. And like, there was a small group of people that, but that was crazy enough to run inside, but like yeah. the, the the proud boys the boogaloo the, like whatever like i don't give a fuck what happens to them mm-hmm. um but like let's be let's be 100 clear that this kind of liberal response i think it's, it's as a piece with localism is like oh god those dirty poors what are they don't they realize how good they have it like right. no it's not that good for most people right and if we ignore that i think we're combined we're condemned to to, to marginality yeah, or this idea that they deserve it. They deserve to be poor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For wrong think. Yeah, 100% agree. So your book's coming out in uh, July, and it's called The <laughs> Late Escapism and Contemporary Neoliberalism. Yeah, and I should mention, I, I do not see any money from that $160 price tag. <laughs> uh, in fact, oh, sure. they... Um, they had me write abstracts introducing each chapter. And I thought, oh, great, that's going to make it accessible. And then I learned, no, that's so they can sell each chapter piece by piece. Uh, as PDFs, I had naive me, had no idea. So I would simply say, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to provide my email to the website. If people want a copy, I'd be happy to uh, send them a review copy. Nice. Because uh, nice. uh, uh, that is absolutely ridiculous amount of money. I would never pay that much for a book. Is it like a, it's a tech is a textbook? It's only 244 pages. It's not like a huge book, right? No. And then I, it could have been longer and uh, I was told to keep it short. So the, 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 and this is not me knocking my publisher whom I'm grateful for giving me a chance, but huh. the money is uh, paid by universities. It's sold mm-hmm. to university libraries. Right, and they're right. going to have the budgets for this sort of thing. Well, it's well, not it meant sense. to be consumed. I mean, it's, it's locally made, right? It's like every page is artisanally crafted. And, uh, <laughs> right. Um, I I think you know I I think the the copy editor who's currently working on right now is is based in a in a call center in India, quite literally. So I'm not so sure I'm not so sure about the localism there. But your 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 keyboard that you typed it on was <laughs> the, the mind the mind the uh, minds yeah. of like artisanal. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, within uh, the it was it the, it was in the hundred mile range. Let's put yeah, it that way. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> Thank God. Well then, yeah. Then I'll consider purchasing it. I'll have to, I'll have to ride uh, ride the scooter up to Canada to pick up a copy, and then I'll boat back down in a zero car- carbon neutral manner. I, if it's not a bicycle, I'm not giving away or selling anything. <laughs> awesome, interesting. I mean, so, you, and uh, theorists, you engage with critical theories such as. I don't even, I'm not smart enough to know these people, but oh this, examine how escapism appears in your mind. Interesting. Yeah, this is, um, I mean, I don't mean to sound in claiming that we, we need to stop being leftist elitist theorists. And I do claim that I'm not anti-theory and I'm not, in, I think I'm very pro-intellectual. I think these are incredible yeah. thinkers who, who've, who've 
captured a slice of reality in a very particular way that we need to understand. And I think in some ways the left used to take human liberation way more seriously. And for that, they thought about consciousness and alienation and what it means to live in this incredibly damaged world as a damaged individual. And I wish that was acknowledged more. And so when I, when I talk about Lukash, I mean, Lukash, for example, talks about consciousness. It's like, how do we build class consciousness? And, at, you know, the height of a revolutionary movement when revolutions are sweeping the globe, 1921-23, and he's writing about how we need people to understand their position in society. So mm-hmm. like, hold on, like he's not saying storm the barricades. He's, he's not saying, why aren't we, you know, fighting the police? He's saying, let's understand ourselves. Like that, that, that means something, right? Like mm-hmm. there, there's, I, it's not hidden at all, but I do think there is a Marxist tradition that sometimes gets sidelined where Marxism is about taking consciousness really seriously. Mm-hmm. You know? And I kind of want us, I want us to do that too. Yeah. Um, I like that approach and like the fact that you, you sort of have that caveat about how like from your first book, you were a little bit more prescriptive at the end and you thought maybe you, you had some solutions where I find myself now a lot is that I, I critique and analyze a lot of things around me and, and I create video content based off of that or, you know, we talk about it on our podcast and people kind of get frustrated. They're like, well, what's your solution? You're, you're, you're critiquing things. What's your solution? And, and I think that we, we, pre- we pressure ourselves too much to have these solutions. How could, like, how could we possibly, like, we've, you know, we have so much to sort of figure out. And we shouldn't pressure ourselves just to, like, find some sort of prescriptive yeah. solution. So I think that that's really great that you um, are leaning into that sort of old school, like let's really stop and think and really go over all these things that we've tried that haven't worked and all this like, you know, material that people have contributed to the larger left and go through it and really use, I guess, you know, in like a Marxist way of sort of, um, sort of scientifically kind of going through and, and holding different ideas in our head and, and being very sort of rational and uh, confronting reality um, as, as hard as it might be. And, and I think that's like, yeah, you have this escapism in the title. And I think maybe that's what the localist thing is, is sort of this, like, and even, you know, the new left is this sort of escapist, like, oh shoot, we don't have time. We only have X number of years left before the whole planet blows up into smithereens. <laughs> and we're under this like pressure to be like, you know, how can I figure this whole thing out myself? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the paradoxes that I'm confronting here is that confronting reality means confronting escapism. That mm. the reality is that most people spend their time being escapist. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a coping mechanism. I think we sure. really, I, I wish I had read more about coping when I was coming up as a leftist, because it might have, things might've made a little more sense to me. But so for example, Ernst Bloch, uh, the German philosopher of utopia, who I, I lean on quite heavily, he has sections in his books on like the joy of breaking things. <laughs> like, wow, like that was considered legitimate discourse. I would never, I haven't read that ever on a left website, you know, or a left newspaper or something, but like he thought that was worthwhile to consider and to share. And, and, and I say all this, like, 
I, I read, I, I'm sorry, I forget which, maybe you worked on it together, but your piece about the, the left intellectuals haven't read Marx and, um, you know, people use that as a stick to like make fun of their leftists for not reading theory. Mm. Um, and I mean, that's utterly r- ridiculous. That, that's, I 100% agree. Um, I don't think theory is useful for its own sake. Theory is just people trying to figure stuff out about their place in the world. Yeah. And if it's useful, it's useful. And if it's not, you got to find some different theory. But right. for me, what, writing this book, these thinkers who, to be honest, I always had this kind of like, oh my God, I'm like so far beneath the um, relationship. And I was reading some of what they wrote. I was like, oh, actually they seem to get how difficult it is to live in like in capitalist society in a way that I don't hear very much about Mm. on the left, to be honest. Mm. Um, They seem to be emphasizing that it's not just about the excesses of capitalism. It's that daily life in capitalism is just fucking hard Mm. and it screws with your head and it's okay to use theory to understand that. I think. Yes, a synthesis of, of all these things. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things we're mi- we're missing in our our daily lives, and yeah, I think and and also being able to sort of uh, address different bodies of work without turning it into the the thing that you believe in now. It's like one person, you know, one dipshit from like 50 years ago wrote a book. You're you're a dipshit now, living and coming up with your own ideas. We're all just like yeah. these dipshits yeah. and we just exactly. need to like, if we can like sort of hold, pull, you know, parse together all the different ideas that we have and weave them together into something that is helpful. Like, cause the, the, the sum is greater. What is, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I, I think that's kind of the way we have to look at all these different bodies of work, you know, and not be so like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a, this, I'm a, um, I don't even know. I see. I don't even read that much theory. I don't even really read that much. <laughs> well, and and why should you yeah. if all it is seems is like this kind of tribal identification? Right, right. right? Like theory is useless if it doesn't connect to something in real life. Yeah. But what what my problem is that when I read left work literature, it's not that I, I agree with most of it, but it's this sense of like, how do we build X? How do you know? How do we take inspiration from Y? That's great, but that's not my daily life. You know, my my daily life is paying the rent, mm-hmm. and you know, wondering you know how how I get by. Yeah. And I think this is the majority experience. This is most people. Yeah. So why shouldn't we theorize about that? Mm-hmm. You know, why shouldn't we use these in tremendous, incredible tools that the left yeah. has given us to apply to everyday life? And that's where yeah. I think escapism is a facet and perhaps even more so in neoliberalism to the extent that we're under so much pressure, we need to escape. Yeah. And uh, this is what I hope, like if I'm, I'm not saying I have all any of the answers, but I am saying this is something we should take seriously. Yeah. Compartmentalizing, right? Like compartmentalizing our real life within like the dream, the dream world, the escape world. And if we leave all this, like, thinking and and imagining imagineering a better world (laughs) if we just (laughs) we just leave that in our escapism and we don't apply that into our our real lives and you know and the problem with the localism i think is is it it foreshortens this it Mm. says you know no no forget all that here's the method Mm. we have the answer 
act in your morally appropriate way, Alice Schumacher, and here is your new world. And, you know, as you've seen, like it fails at the first hurdle. So, yeah. Right. Mm. Right. Uh, it's a lot, it's a lot to think about. It's good. This is good. Are there, are there like more um, questions that you have about like our weird little <laughs> strange utopia that we live in here? Well, okay. I do have a question and I'm not sure it's answerable, but like, to me, the idea of there being one small, it's small, right? Kingston, New York. It's not mm-hmm. big. We have like 20, 20, 23,000 people. Yeah. Okay. So one small city and it's full of money from New York city and it's full of money from the biggest capitalist in America. <laughs> okay. That to me says this is a vanity project. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no different than some of those weird Christian apocalyptic communities mm-hmm. or militia farms or um, whatever. It's just, it can't be reproduced. Exactly. Yeah. Do the localists ever think about this? Or do they think like, well, we build it here. We can build it everywhere. They're, insist- they're insisting that this, has, this is going to be a model that's going to raise people's consciousness. Yep. Uh, and I don't know if you followed the, the cooperation Jackson story at all. Very small. Okay. So it's, it's very similar to that. And that's another project that's funded by the same people that, um, you know, it's like a little bubble in Jackson, Mississippi, but the myth making around it has made it, has elevated it far beyond what it actually is. And that's like a very common critique that you can find out there is that, you know, I'll say casual leftists because it is a, it's basically like being a fan of leftism. Casual leftists all the time, including us in the past, have said, oh, uh, you, you want to know what socialism would be like? Well, take a look at Cooperation Jackson. There's yeah. an example that's working. You know, you can, uh, there's a you book know about it, there's videos. Is we were in a we're in a we were in a local Facebook group about ge- the topic of gentrification where we talk with local people, and Peter mm-hmm. Buffett very often comes in you know li- you know reads and sometimes interacts with people there, and mm-hmm. we quite literally said to people before we knew that Cooperation Jackson was funded by Peter Buffett and the Novo Foundation, we said this is a socialist model that seems to be doing all the right things, and we would point to mm-hmm. it as an example. And he and Peter Peter he never acknowledged say, that he oh funds it himself. He's like the main <laughs> the main funder of it. He's given them millions of dollars of the years, and he just liked the comment. But he could have been like, "Oh, well, actually, if you're worried about this, like I fund that, and we have a lot of lessons that we're gonna like imp- try to implement in Kingston." You know, yeah, let's, and let's let's imagine together. And there's a Guardian article that um, is the basis of the video that I I made about all this um, mm-hmm. called the the what is the city preparing for the end of capitalism? the city preparing for the end of capitalism. And Mm. it, it highlights like six non-for-profits that are being funded heavily by Novo and the Buffett, you know, but they don't say it in the article. They don't list that information at, they leave that part out. So Mm. that, that Mm. article went, you know, a little bit viral, had like 7,000 shares or something. And people were like, wow, what a great model. This sounds like a utopia. This sounds like a perfect city. This place sounds amazing. And I'm like, oh my God, like the whole, this is being yeah. marketed to the outside world is this like model but, that, mm. yeah. Yeah. And the, the thing is, at all. yeah, the thing is that 
the money has been mystified uh, and it's, it's uh, verboten to, to bring up the money to anybody and that there's no context about it. Like I, ha- I really had to search for this information to, f- to figure out that this is uh, with only two other like rivals. This is like the most money by any one foundation in any small community in the United States. The other wow. two, um, the, the Walmart family, the Waltons, they're doing a conservative version of this in uh, <laughs> in their town in art in Arkansas, and also um, another Buffett son, Howard Buffett, he's doing a conservative version of this in Decatur, Illinois, um, where he's oh. actually he's actually uh, been elected the sheriff of Decatur, Illinois. Like he's <laughs> he's a law and order guy, so he's like he's super uh, involved oh. there. But uh, yeah, like the whole the whole thing they're tell they're all telling themselves is that the ends justify the means that they just need to prove that you can do it with like hundreds of millions of dollars so that other people in the country will like be inspired by it. But, inspired. you know, it, it never makes it into the story like with cooperation Jackson too. And it's never in the stories about it that, Oh, by the way, it takes millions and millions of foundation dollars to get these things off the ground. Uh, it's always presented as, oh, well, this is a scrappy grassroots member-led thing. Um, and they never mention the massive amount of money that do it and the, the t- time frame that's needed. So it, it's a total mystification and a grift, uh, unfortunately. Oh. I wish it were true, but it's not. I mean, the fact that he's his brother is trying that in Decatur, which is site of site of some of the most intense grassroots trade union struggles uh, in the 90s is just, I mean, I, it's shocking, but I can also, it fits into kind of the Trumpian narratives of like people who, uh, you know, mounted a desperate resistance against the end of their workplaces and were left with nothing. Like, of course, hard right reaction moves in and uh, who hmm. wouldn't jump at the chance of hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, that's just, oh, that's despicable. Um, but I think there's something there's something there in two ways. One is, as you said, the money never gets mentioned. So how reproducible is this? But then also the rents. I mean, the fact that this is a capital sink for these for these people that they are. This is reinvestment by any other name, but except in terms of like all this unproductive luxury consumption has to go somewhere. So yeah. why not properties in a place where there's giant murals? Um, there's there's no understanding of how capitalism works, but I think it sounds like, you know, this your your, your friend there, uh, you know, he stays silent for a reason. Like he knows his, the rich know know how capitalism works. The poor yeah. people don't. Yeah. yeah. Well, he has a, a Promethean belief, and I'm I'm like I'm editorializing, but I think he has a Promethean belief in himself and his vision of how the world should be. And he believes that the ends justify the means. And he often talks about a 500 year uh, timeline for all these projects where he's like, we're doing pre-construction for like the next mode of, you know, the next uh, economic relations uh, in the, in the world. So like he, he does not, there's no like connection to the people that are already here other than, you know, their usefulness in implementing these programs and getting them started. You know who, this is something that, that comes in, in my latest book, but you know who really gets that? I mean, said 500-year plan. There's a, uh, there's a group, you may want to look this up, the uh, Coalition for 
Responsible Capitalism, I think it's called. Mm. And it was started by Lady de Rothschild of the Rothschild um, old, old banking capital family. Mm. And they've managed to cobble together uh, investors worth $21 trillion. And they have sponsors from, you know, every senator, university president, um, the Clintons, His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales. Coalition um, for Inclusive Capitalism? Inclusive Capitalism, thank yeah. you very much. Um, Sounds like some Davos stuff. Yeah, they're, they're Davos all the time. And I find it fascinating that the, you know, there's the kind of like, let's say the Trumpian fraction of the ruling class who are just like, fuck all y'all, I want my money and uh, the world can go to hell. But then there's this kind of longer term vision of the capitalist class who, if you read what they're saying, it's it's just bonkers. It's just the idea that like, oh, you know, we'll just encourage companies to be more transparent and people will trust us again. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the anti-globalization movement was a result of poor communication, all all this like, you know, step out of your mansion. But like (laughs) this, this idea that like, yeah, we'll just create the plan. You kind of see on the one hand, how breathtakingly arrogant these people are. So the idea that you can, you can do that. On the other hand, how short-sighted and how sweetly naive they are. Like they don't even working. It's working in the sense that they reassure each other. And I think certainly the mass of people are demoralized and disoriented, but I don't see the masses, to use maybe an old fashioned term, truly, you know, marching in the streets for better corporate openness and transparency. Like, I I really think to me, it feels like this sense of like, we have lost responsible leadership and now let's get it back and that it's not a thing secular basically it's this problem with with our strategies yeah i mean i'd I'd almost i kind of disagree with that because i believe that it is working because when people do march in the streets it inevitably is getting turned back to corporate responsibility Hmm. and uh corporate inclusion um you know like within within a week like amazon had a giant banner on its website saying like, we, we support black lives matter. And the NASDAQ declared that black lives matter. They're marching in the streets for actual change, but then what they get is, are these corporate caveats. So it's probably like the seed of it is, is right. You know, and it's not like getting resolved for most people, but enough people get, you know, get derailed, get turned, turned off by that. Or like they, they calm down because, they saw, they see something tangible. And like, I, I understand, I agree with you that like, they're not resolving the, the tensions and the underlying rage that is just only going to keep building, but they're also like, they're extending their lifespan by, by decades and decades. Wow. And I guess you, I saw the meme with the trans flag in the Amazon warehouse. That was, uh, yeah, yeah that's just, yeah. Shocking to me. Um, so I guess I, Okay. Yeah, we're ta- we're coming at the same problem from different perspectives, I think, or maybe just like different angles. Because I agree, the corporate class or the capitalist class, let's call it what it is, is extremely. You know, they, they have money and they have marketers and they have focus groups and they hire agencies to figure out the feelings associated with various, cam- yep. various campaigns and projects. I mean, this is this is big business. So it doesn't surprise me that this response is here. What's frustrating is that the left is coming from such a disorganized, disoriented place mm. that 
when we move, and I'm saying we quite deliberately here, when we move, we create massive ripples, like, which I consider Black Lives Matter. Like mm-hmm. everyone had to respond to that. You could not ignore that. And it swept yeah. away, I would say, years of gradualism in, in a couple of weeks. It's like suddenly, oh shit, we got to do something about this. And, and they did. Yeah. And then it subsides because we don't have the infrastructure capable of, of broadening and maintaining this organization. So the corporate response doesn't surprise me. But what I think hope gives me hope and also frustration is the fact that these upsurges keep happening and we keep lacking the ability to, what's the opposite, to socialize on them. I don't want to sort of capitalize. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, in, in large sense, because of, you know, the kind of detours we've taken along localism and, and various other uh, yeah. Well, we have, totally. no ba- we have no base. Yeah. When yeah. all this energy surges, we have nowhere to direct it. We have no actual... Or we, we don't have, we're not organized, but it's not for there, a lack of money either there, but there's a general sense that, and, and this is part of that, like going back into the, like the coping and the delusion is that like people want to think that the left is growing and that we're, you know, there's a lot of these sort of aesthetic cues that maybe like socialism and ca- anti-capitalism is becoming mainstream, but, and that the left, and that means that the left is growing, but we're in reality, there is no like working class organizing happening all that stuff gets squashed immediately any real power building base building gets squashed immediately and so what we're left with is just these aesthetics of like and then people say they they don't they don't want to take the you know the black pill and be like oh there's (laughs) they don't want to look at the reality that 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 the left is just dwindled into nothing and any any attempt at, at actually building power and building base has been absolutely fucking crushed <laughs> they they want to say no no it's actually like in some ways it's actually getting better and this and that so then when these yeah. when these these organic things these surges do bubble up there's no base that that people can direct that energy that can capitalize on that energy we as we as you know, a left cannot capitalize on that energy. The capitalists capitalize on that energy, and they did yeah. brilliantly over the summer. It was sad. It was really yeah. sad. Like when the the coronavirus first hit, you know, I mentioned we do like we attempt to do tenant organizing. We have not mm-hmm. been very successful, <laughs> but that seemed like a real moment where the emperor's clothes fell off, and it was like, oh my god, this exposed a lot of the problems. And it was like this moment of like, whoa. I think people were starting to like have that sense, that organic sense of class consciousness and it freaked people in power out. And, and I think that using that, that moment of, you know, all the rioting was perfect. It was a perfect opportunity to like massage that into this, like, you know, moment where they could just say oh no no jeff bezos says black lives matter we need to center the voices white fragility and just took all that frustration turned it into a whole new whole new industry <laughs> yeah basically yeah. yeah no that's that that's true and so i mean i get i take hope and you know the, the indomitable human spirit is marxist humanism in, in, in my latest book i mean mm-hmm. these upsurges will not stop because we are human beings at the end of the day and we cannot face these kind of contradictions alone without resisting or getting angry in some way. And um, the, the key challenge, and this is where I think no local, perhaps, you know, 
skated way too quickly over some things is we don't have an infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's some green shoots, uh, perhaps from a distance, the U.S. seems much better than, uh, than where I'm sitting, um, but there is a huge way to go. And so how did it get defeated? That's, you know, the story of Mark Fisher, you mentioned, I mean, that is, I think he's on it. Like mm-hmm. he knows how we lost our power. Mm-hmm. And then how do we rebuild it? Man, um, I have no clear answer to that. Although I do think that's the question at least. Well, I, I think like your line of thinking of just like really confronting escapism, <laughs> like talk, let's talk about escapism versus reality and alienation and utopias and our drive our, our desire for that. And let's, let's be really honest with ourselves. Right. I think being honest with ourselves is like the biggest thing that we can do right now. Yeah. Let's come to terms with, with the reality that we're in, that we're facing. Yeah. What, what is the game board we're looking at right now? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, some of the joys that I get from the various whatever older works on the world and it's not i say theory it's not just theory i mean the book talks about journalism as well radical journalism is in a situation of like various mass movements and the growth and uh, you know eventual growth of uh, movements and encompassed millions of people there were so many we have these little historical nuggets that have been passed down to us about like people who investigated where they were quite locally I know. I, I mean, I talk about uh, this guy Siegfried Krakauer. He's this radical German journalist and, and theorist, but he just he goes into daily life. He he called he wrote this book called The Salaried Masses in about 1929, 1931 Germany. He just goes into daily life and how miserable these people are and how they distinguish themselves and what they did for fun and uh, you know the the clubs they belong to and you know what their dreams and hopes and frustrations were. And it's so familiar. I'm like, okay, so it's, oh, it is okay for the left to talk about this stuff. It's not all struggle, struggle, struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we if we have pretensions to be a mass movement, we have to figure out how ma- the mass of people feel about themselves and their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to appeal to the masses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of questions, I don't know, like, I, I just, everything, it's weird to me because I did not start a small business like you folks. And uh-huh. uh, I, I mean, I, I I was part of a small business project in South Korea, but like, I I feel like you, you I just approach it theoretically that you learned everything firsthand. Like you, you saw the contradictions yeah. of local business. And I came from the school been... of hard knocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how to put it. So like, yeah, that must've been a tremendously like disorienting experience for, for yeah. you both. Like, yeah. did you go into it feeling like, yeah, this is, this is how we're going to, we're going to do things differently now. And then, and then when it didn't work out, you're like, oh my God, what comes next? Or- yeah. I mean, for, for myself, like I had, I'd always struggled with being a working class person. I mean, yeah. obviously I didn't, I didn't know about like communism or leftist theory or Marxism growing up. I grew up, you know, pretty poor and I, I sort of pulled myself up by, you know, working, you know, in restaurants, things like that. Um, and I started doing like design work, freelancing work. And I, I just sort of like pulled myself up um, that way. And I, you know, I, I always felt that tension between like being, you know, a worker and having worker boss or worker manager relationship always felt that like really 
horrible tension. And -hmm. I was like, you know what, when I have a business, I am going to treat, I I, I kind of, I think wanted more of a cooperative business, ideally, um, where I could say like fellow workers, let's all like work to like, you know, help each other out. And, but then I realized like, um, the people just wanted a job. People wanted a paid, a regular paycheck. And I was like, I don't want to force people to like into precarity with me. So let me sort of like be this paternal figure who can kind of provide the, the regular paycheck that I wasn't afforded at other places and sort of like be that good, the good boss. Although I never wanted to be a boss. I wanted everyone to kind of like feel like they were contributing to like a, a thing that we all cared about, but the, the, in reality, yes. In reality, it's like people just want to do their job and check out and go home that I didn't understand that. Like, you know, all the, how, you know, labor gets extracted, the value of labor gets extracted. And that's like, I was terrible at doing that. <laughs> if anything, like, you know, we went into debt, just be, you know, paying people. Um, mm-hmm. Although we do retain like the value of the company that was created. But, you know, as a, as um, I think you even mentioned this in your book, how like uh, the small business owners usually end up doing a lot of the work themselves. Yeah. And I, yeah. you know, I did, I did like Alex and I probably did like, you know, 70, 80, 90, 90% of the work um, of the, you know, the company, we were, we were hard. I've always been like a hard worker. I've never wanted to be one of those bosses who is like, you know, you do the work, I'm going to go on vacation kind of thing. Um, So yeah, it just, it, it didn't work out. And um, it was really interesting to, to like see that firsthand, how even if you want to be like the best employer, the best boss and do it like the right, like, you know, ethical way, you can't, you just, you can't, you, you literally, you'll go broke unless you're like personally rich and you have money to like play with. You'll go, you'll go, you'll go broke trying to like do things ethically. The myth of the the dollar recirculating locally too, which you talk about in your book Mm -hmm. is so interesting because like for, I mean, for us, our money goes to like the bank for the mortgage. It goes to the, the landlord for the rent. It goes to the credit card companies for the debt that we're in. Uh, it goes to like, we need cheap goods because like, we don't want, you know, we don't want to like treat ourselves uh, to this, like on stuff that we can't afford. So like, you know, we're shopping at like Walmart and Target, which are like not artisanal locally made things. <laughs> so like, it, you know, it's not even, it's all the delusion. It, it is all delusion. And then the other thing too, is like small businesses are not regulated as much. So like we could get away with not um, offering health insurance to our employees. We didn't have it. <laughs> we justified yeah, yeah. it by being like, well, we don't have it. So, yeah. you know, but yeah. that's the thing is like when you're, you know, small businesses don't have like, um, you know, the same centralization as uh, these larger companies, these larger conglomerates who then can, you know, compile all that administrative work into a centralized source and then get people, you know, they can be regulated a little bit more heavily because they have the yeah. means to do so, whereas small businesses really don't. So there's a lot yeah. less regulation, which ends up hurting, uh, you know, the, the workers at these small businesses. You and know, the- and oh, sorry. Uh, there's so many things too. And it, it um, 
it blurs the lines too between that um, the the boss and the the employee. I, I've I've witnessed this here a lot, where employees will defend their bosses, mm-hmm. and they there's like this relationship where those lines those tensions kind of get blurred because the boss is like the friend too, you know, because we're all in this together, which can be nice. And I don't want to rag on people for having like nice relationships, mm-hmm. but it does obfuscate that inherent economic tension that is between these two groups. Yeah. I was going to say too, that uh, at one point, you know, one of the best things we did was like we bartered uh, to get a deck, uh, a deck built onto our house um, with like a contractor, you know, we, we did a project and there was an exchange. We didn't need any kind of NGO or any kind of like, (laughs) you know, fancy uh, bartering system. Like we just, we like brought it up to them that we'd be down to do this and it worked out. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the thing, like with, with localism, there's a lot of agreeable notions, um, but you don't necessarily, the problem is that it gets run through this NGO academia, Mm. uh, filter where it has, it all has to go through these, like it has to be mediated by these nonprofits and all these other like organizations. And you end up with this like completely bastardized thing. That's like further from, those local, those, yeah. you know, those nice, those nice, like feelies that we all want from, mm. from localism. Yeah. And I think I mentioned in the book that some of the problems, at least in the UK that they've had with once you start a barter system based on local currencies, establishing equivalent values becomes very, very tricky. Mm. And the systems eventually fell apart because suddenly yeah. people thought that babysitting was not worth as much as their, um, you know, I don't know artisanal bread or what have you right yeah um that's very difficult to uh to establish um i can i plug one more thing and i'm, I'm just gonna please <laughs> please I, i'm gonna put this in the chat yeah so basically my point is that this the left like it fetishizes localism in some degrees it also fetishizes uh cooperatives mm-hmm. and I looked at the history of the uh, far left back when the left was like at its height in the early 20th century and what they said about cooperatives. Cause I was expecting like, yes, we must build cooperatives and build the new socialist society. And they were mm. all saying like, well, yeah, cooperatives are good. If they're subordinate to a strong union, it can support the members, but nobody gave any independent role to cooperatives at all because they're all focused on taking over the heights of capital basically wow, that <laughs> like, great. um yeah my, thank you I'm, I'm like uh i still get some inquiries from that uh about that article published yeah. like four years ago you know it reminds um, me it reminds me of the discourse around mutual aid too where mm-hmm. cooperatives and mutual aid are are talked about as these ends in and of themselves that are so consciousness raising that just the act of doing them is worthwhile but really like it, they should be done in in support of a, a larger like program or in support of building like an organization that can sustain. Right. And that kind of subtle, like that nuance that you just mentioned always gets lost. It's either what you don't like cooperatives. What are you? Some kind yeah. of capitalist. And it's like, yeah. no, but what are you trying to accomplish? Like, are you yeah. really going to transform an $87 trillion annual economy, which is the global economy right now? Yeah. Like a couple of years out of date with your little grocery store. Like, yeah. don't you think those two things interact and no one ever seems to talk about that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, 
the idea too, I mean, these are, these are all like these kind of like middle-class things like, you know, the, in terms of building a program, if we're, if we're really serious about like building a mass movement, I mean, all these things like a co-op, you say the word co-op and it just makes people think like, Oh, too rich for my blood. Like, yeah, it's all like organic stuff that is like $11 for a bagel, you know, and <laughs> there's like weird, a weird culture there. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, that's another, th- that's another thing we have here. We have a co-op movement and kind of, uh, so Buffett is like, yeah. Oh Buffett's subsidizing the creation of a co-op where um, you know how like co-ops, I don't know how much you've like familiarized yourself with them, but they can take like five to 10 years to like build up enough momentum, enough community buy-in, uh, enough capital. But there was basically an idea for a co-op and Buffett was like, oh, we need to do this. And he gave them, he gifted them a building and millions of dollars to like renovate it and the members the membership and the community buy-in is coming in after that uh not before and now it's uh, mentioned in real estate ads yeah now it's in like real estate ads like be near the There's co-op oh my god yeah. that's insane <laughs> yeah <laughs> like i just think like okay I, this sounds facetious in a way it has been a way it isn't like my dreams being is writing science fiction novels. I've always wanted to be a sci-fi writer. So what if I said to, to Mr. Buffett, like, you know, I think I can really build community by uh, sharing my vision of the future with others. Like, yes. would, he bu- would he buy me a building and give me like uh, $250,000 a year to, to let you're my like, vision come true? You're like, like 75% of the way there. Yeah. You have to, you'd have to run into him at like a community event and like, really sweet talking, but you know, yeah, I think, you know, be dressed in LL Bean and uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, dream big. Isn't this the, the ideology? It just, it, it just strikes me like how much of this is just lifestyle. Like there, there's nothing liberatory about this. Yeah. And yet you're faced with this on a, I guess, <laughs> carving out this little space of critical, critical thinking. in your right. Well, he's at the flatter room. I mean, he, you have to watch Fox's video. I'll, I'll send it to you after we're done, but uh, please. Yeah. He did a 45 minute video called the revolution will not be funded. And it uses mm-hmm. Kingston as an example about that. Um, mm-hmm. But if you look at the comments, like Peter Buffett found the video and he got really mad <laughs> and, oh, and he just got okay. like, he just got owned in the comments. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Yeah. You'll, you'll enjoy it. But uh, he's probably listening to this too. And like, you know, yeah. I, Peter, I like, think... you're a nice you're you seem like a very nice man and like i just you're not elected to like run our city you know <laughs> you've Self, self-appointed yourself because you have the most money the, the the personalization of politics i think goes along with localism to be honest because it is part of i to say this in chapter four the petty virtual habitus the, the idea that politics is not about you know managing conflicting interests and like dare I say, promoting liberation at the expense of the exploiters. Politics is about having good people do good things. Yeah. You know, and this is such a petty bourgeois vision of how the world's supposed Mm. to work. Yes. That's here. They call here. They call it good folks doing good work. Oh, I was, I thought I was top of my head, but clearly I was on something. Wow. Yeah. The good work, (laughs) the good work Institute. Yeah. That's what it's called. (laughs) That's that's the official name of the Institute. That's, that's the one that's was started by the Etsy co-founder. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So he he lives here. Um, one of the co the co founders of Foursquare lives here. Um, we just ha- Michael White lives here. Mi- Michael White, who uh, 
the Adbusters guy who like co-created Occupy Wall Street. Oh yeah, and now yeah, no. now he has. He's a, in the video too. An activist graduate school that he runs at Bard College, which is funded by the Open Societies Foundation. I know Bard College. That's oh, nearby, yeah. and yeah, I mean, this is. I think I, I, one of my many job applications was was there. I never got a look in, but um, the, I didn't realize this was a uh, massive. We open societies Soros. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So they they study it and they like they funnel interns to all like the uh, NGOs here. Uh, so it at, at Kingston at all times is like a classroom, a workplace, uh, an experiment. You know, it's like all these things at once. It's like a, uh, it's a fishbowl. You know, for for all these people that are poking and prodding it, to, uh, in the hopes that it's going to be this inspiring example to the rest of the world, or indeed finding new ways to uh, fix capital for the uh, comfortably afflicted. Yeah. Yep. You've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox. I'm Alex. And we've been talking to Greg Scharzer. Uh, we've been talking about his book, No Local, which is awesome. You should go read it. Um, he's also got a book coming out uh, in July called Late Escapism and Contemporary Neoliberalism, Alienation, Work, and Utopia. Um, what else, Greg? What, what do you want to plug or add to that? Uh, simply that uh, I'm really happy that I got a chance to uh, chat about you both with these incredible issues. I feel like we uh, we went deep and yet scratched the surface of many things. Uh, and um, yeah, thanks thanks for making the space. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was our ple- our pleasure to have you on talk about this stuff. It was a good good therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone someone can listen to us finally and understand what, what the <laughs> hell we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> happy to happy to likewise cool